Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, invites you to be the informed patient with the podcast that features experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Some medical conditions that may not be a big problem for some people could be medical emergencies in people who have cancer or a history of cancer. It's something both doctors and patients need to be aware of. So today I'm talking with Dr. Ali Wazir. He's completing specialty training at Upstate in the field of hematology oncology, and he presented an educational seminar at Upstate recently on this subject. Welcome to The Informed Patient, Dr. Wazir. Thank you for having me. Now, to start, I don't want to alarm people. How common are oncologic emergencies? Uh, well, I mean, uh, it's a, uh, it's not a straightforward answer because you have to define the term, that's It's quickly becoming the second most common cause of death in America, cardiovascular disease, still be the majority, strokes and other causes uh, on the second place, but cancers are quickly catching up, and the thought is in the next few years, they may take the second position. The cancer rates are still on the high side. So if you keep that in mind, uh, and you define oncological uh, emergencies, uh, you know, a bit uh, narrowly as emergencies directly related to uh, patients who have cancer, if you do that, it's not an uncommon reason to end up in the hospital for cancer care. Uh, unfortunately, it's also uh, a very common uh, uh, way of treating find out for the first time whether they have cancer or not. It's a very common presentation and diagnosis. Uh, so it's hard to put numbers because this is a basket term for many different uh, clinical uh, conditions. Uh, but you could say, just looking at the numbers, that uh, it's a fairly common uh, you know, occurrence now. Now, in your presentation at Upstate, you talked about a specific symptom, um, a back pain, which gets worse when you lay down and how this could be a symptom of something called malignant spinal cord compression. What is that? Back pain in America is by far the most common reason uh, for uh, referrals to emergency department. That is such a common thing. And, you know, more than 90% of the time, it's going to be something that I, you know, like as you get older, your discs, uh, they lose elasticity, your joints, they uh, wear and tear, you can have bone problems or fractures for other reasons. But then there's a subset of this, which is something that is more concerning and something uh, that you uh, take very importantly. When I mentioned, uh, you know, the fact that you have back pain that, you know, is worse while laying down or persists uh, while you're laying down, that was kind of like uh, uh, referring to what's uh, called the red flags of uh, back pain. These include uh, things of, like any neurological system that are present along with the back pain. It also includes things like focal tenderness, that is, like when you press on a certain part of the back, uh, eliciting pain. So the, the, the whole point of this is that back pain is a common thing, so you need to be very cautious about things that make it different from the run-of-the-mill back pain. If someone with cancer has been found to have developed spinal cord compression, does that maybe indicate that the cancer has spread? Unfortunately, the fact that uh, you know, you develop spinal cord uh, compression uh, means it's actually three things. Number one, it means that uh, uh, cancer is already passed into uh, the bone. Uh, most of the cancers in the back uh, are not cancers that arise from the back. They're, they're cancers that came from somewhere else, traveled through the blood, and then uh, you know reach the uh, uh, the bones of the back, and then you know uh, in the vertebral body, and it fits into the spinal cord space causing the uh, symptoms of pain and 
Um, the other symptoms of uh, focal tenderness and, you know, neurological compromise. So it means that uh, it's metastatic. It has already gone into the blood and kind of gone into the bone. Uh, there are exceptions to this. that some cancers such as multiple myeloma, systemic disease, as you call it. Uh, you know, but apart from that, for all the other chronic cancers and even lymphoma to an extent, the fact that you have cancer-causing pain in the back already means that, like, stage four cancer. The other thing that comes up is that uh, the cancer, it has spread and it has become uh, fast-growing. That with cancer starts, for a lot of the cancers, there'll be uh, months to sometimes years where there's very slow growth. So uh, the, the way to think about this, uh, for a cancer to go from one cell to 100,000 cells can take a long time. But for a cancer to go from 100,000 cells to, let's say, a million cells or two million cells, that's called the problem, is a much faster process. So this has been noted to the seventies how cancer cells divide and how they, uh, you know, propagate it. So if somebody had a history of cancer a while back and survived it, and now they've developed a spinal cord compression, is that something to consider is whether the cancer has come back? Oh, absolutely. So I hate being an alarmist, but unfortunately for cancer, any stage of cancer, even early stage cancer, there is that chance that it will come back. And this is particularly true for two of the most common kind of cancers that we have, breast cancer and melanoma, where they can have like long periods of senescence. Like there'll be long periods, like let's say if someone had melanoma that was localized, it was detected, and this was maybe over 20 years ago. It's not unusual and not unheard of to have metastatic disease that can also present itself in the back and, you know, it's causing problems. So... Uh, unfortunately, with a lot of cancers, once you have the curative surgery and the curative chemotherapy, and you have potentially curative disease, it's never 100%. There's always a rate of patients who, unfortunately, will come back with either localized recurrence or metastatic recurrence. So if you have back pain and it has, it, uh, you know, it, it has all those red flags, and if you had with this hitch uh, of uh, cancer, even in the past 20 years, I would say, that really needs uh, to make you think as uh, something that needs to be investigated. Well, let me ask you about something else that could be an emergency. What qualifies as a fever in someone who's in treatment for cancer? A lot of the chemotherapy is for cancer. They're designed to uh, kill off cells that rapidly uh, reproduce. You know? so, uh, so that's why your cancer can have a lot of GI symptoms because you have the linings in your uh, GI tracts that are being affected because they're like cells with quick turnover. So that's why you know, cancer can have effects on skin, mucous membranes. But another set of cells that rapidly reproduce are your blood cells. Your uh, red blood cells, all of them in your body, the millions of them are replaced, uh, you know, like uh, uh, are replaced all the time. You know, your white cells, your marrow can, you know, sometimes pump out up, uh, up to a billion cells. And some of these cells only last like six hours in your blood. So these are very active tissues, you know. So cancer medications that kind of like uh, will affect these cells that the best to me. So if you have uh, cancer therapy, one of the things you, a doctor, you may have heard is the doctor saying is that he, uh, we have to monitor your patient count, you monitor your red blood cell count, and also your white cell count. Uh, and in the white cell count, we are very focused on the neutrophils. So these are a type of white cells that protect us against certain bacterial infections. So this number is called the EFC, so the absolute neutrophil count. And if this is low, uh, your body essentially is not as protected uh, against bacterial infections uh, as you would uh, hope. But specifically to your question, uh, a fever is an early uh, early warning, a warning sign in your body for uh, bacterial infections, right? So a fever in a patient who does not have a confident immune system because of the chemotherapy, 
it's something that you cannot uh, you cannot uh, 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 disregard. So uh, a fever uh, for a patient with cancer uh, is like very strictly defined. It doesn't change with a long time. So one reading above 100.9 uh, or uh, 100.4 with a repeated reading uh, within an hour. This the definition for fever. And anybody who has cancer therapy, their doctor is going to tell them that you need to have a thermometer at home. Uh, you need to know how to use it. And even if you're not having symptoms, but you feel feverish, you feel warm, you need to check uh, the temperature. And if it's higher than this number, 100.9 on uh, one occasion or 100.4 on two occasions, some people say 15 uh, minutes apart, but if you look at the book definition, it's like an hour apart. Uh, that is a real fever. It's called the febrile neutropenia. This is Upstate's The Informed Patient Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Ali Wazir. He's completing a fellowship in hematology-oncology at Upstate, and we're talking about oncologic emergencies, medical issues that might arise in people in treatment for cancer. So in your presentation recently, you talked about some issues that involve the heart and circulatory system, something called malignant pericardial tamponade, what is that and, and what causes it? This is in the same vein as the first thing we discussed. Uh, you know, radio cancer has entered a space that uh, is uh, confined. You know, like let's say, you know, cancer that's impinging on the spinal canal. In the same sense, the cancer can impinge into your vascular structure. Again, like for example, impinge into your SPC, which is the main vein that uh, takes all the blood from the top part of your body into your heart. And it's called SPC syndrome, you know. Uh, that is an uncommon uh, cause of uh, issues in patients with lung cancer. But another thing cancer can do, and this is pretty, uh, you know, that's pretty common, but it's not unheard of, unheard of for uh, central cancer. Because it's so geographically close to the center of the chest, they can invade into the peritoneum. And what's the peritoneum? Peritoneum is the covering around your heart. Your Part, it's surrounded by pericardial fluid, which is a very small amount, but this actually as a lubricant and it's popping all the time. Uh, so this space is normally empty, but sometimes this space can fill up with blood uh, or cancer cells or uh, a lot of fluid. And when this happens very rapidly, your heart, essentially what happens to it is that uh, it cannot pump against its external pressure. So it's a plumbing problem. And if you think about the heart, it's a pump in parallel. Essentially, think of it as two pumps. One pump is pumping the blood that comes from all of your body. So, from the uh, vessel that we talked about, the SPC, but also the inferior vena cava, it goes to the right side of the heart and it pumps to the lung. And this is a low pressure system. And the left side of your heart is a high pressure system with thick walls that uh, can kind of like fight the pressure. And this, this part of the heart is the main pump that kind of takes the blood back from the lung to the rest of your body. So, once uh, the the uh, fact that we talked about, if the inside of it is now filled with fluid very rapidly or blood or, you know, even gas cells, your heart cannot expand, especially the right side of your heart is stopped expanding. And this is called the pericardial tamponade. And this is life-threatening, you know. If this isn't uh, ameliorated, uh, you know, patient can lose his life uh, very rapidly, actually. But let's say you have a diagnosis of cancer and you're having symptoms uh, of shortness of breath, you're having symptoms of uh you know, not being able to do the same thing you're able to do like a day before. You have to remember this is quick usually. It's not something that takes too long. So you have a uh, rapid decrease in your activity level, let's say, or if you have uh, other issues such as like chronic uh, new legs, for example, the veins in your neck become very prominent for whatever reason. All these kind of subtle signs 
uh, will need to be brought up to the doctor because this could be a sign of an oncological emergency that we call pericardial tamponade. So you have to kind of remember that you can have the same disease from non-cancerous causes, uh, you know, such as rheumatoid arthritis, etc. But, uh, you know, it can also happen in cancer. Why is the level of calcium in the body a concern for someone with cancer or with a cancer history? A lot of cancers can cause like own lesions. Your body has very good ways of adjusting calcium levels through the kidneys or through the amount of calcium that's absorbed from the gut. Your body can adjust for this. But in uh, a patient have a high load of cancer in the bone, it's an aggressive cancer that that's what what is called osteolytic mass. Uh, that's mass in the bone that kind of break down the bone. Or some cancers they can produce a uh, hormone that normally regulates your calcium uh, levels called BDH, so it can make a molecule that looks very similar. Uh, and any of these reasons will cause you to essentially uh, have a very increased calcium uh, level. Uh, a very high calcium level, the symptoms are very actually kind of hard to detect at first, very honest. The earlier symptoms are hard to detect. Uh, but typically, what, what you will hear from patients who are going through this is that doctors are just constipated. Uh, you know, I've gone in a couple of days. Uh, they'll say that, you know, they feel uh, fatigued, they feel tired. They can also mention things like changes of sleep. They can also uh, mention that, you know, the family members can mention that they're acting kind of agitated, they're acting not themselves. So these, these are the typical symptoms of hypercalcemia. All of these things uh, can kind of point out to the fact that you may have like a very high uh, cancer level. That can happen at a number of cancers, actually. With more and more cancer patients being treated with immunotherapies, what sorts of oncologic emergencies might develop? The thing that has really changed uh, the cancer landscape in the last 10 years is immunotherapy. So the uh, use of immune therapy to fight cancer. The way to think about this is you're using your own immune system to kind of like recognize the foreignness of cancer. Because when you look at a cancer under a microscope, it doesn't look like any tissue in your body. And this kind of therapy, it doesn't have the same side effects as classical chemotherapy. So, you know, you don't have the nausea, vomiting, and the blood count being affected. But it comes with its own sets of uh, problems. It's very important for patients to recognize. It's important because the treatment for all of these problems, when your immune system fights your own body, uh, it's you know, fairly simple. You just slow down the immune system by using a drug like steroids, etc. But it's very important for patients to recognize this very early. And we do counsel our patients a lot about this. Uh, but it's important for them to realize that it could be any tissue. So your uh, immune system can attack any tissue in your body. So it could be a rash. It could be diarrhea from your immune system attacking your uh, colon, for example, or your larger system. It could be the immune system attacking your thyroid, causing thyroid problems. It could be your immune system uh, attacking uh, your lung system, causing what we call pneumonitis. You have to be very uh, vigilant because this isn't like a normal chemotherapy. This can happen a month or even a couple of months after the start uh, starting of treatment. So, uh, less predictable than uh, classical chemotherapy. I think a lot of our patients now are on these uh, very powerful drugs, and they have been almost miraculous in changing the life of our patients. But it's very important that they, they need to realize that sometimes, on a rare occasion, that can also cause an uh, oncological emergency. And the key thing is to recognize it early and treat it early. So patients who are taking immunotherapy probably have a pretty close relationship with their oncologist, you know, staying in touch with them about any sort of side effects they may be having. Absolutely. And uh, the problem with this is that 
there's no one set of symptoms we can tell the patient, right? It's not like, oh, I look out for diarrhea or, oh, I look out for fever. It could be a host of things, you know, going from rash to all the way to having a thyroid problem. Even development of diabetes mellitus, you can develop diabetes mellitus in your 60s and 70s while on these medications. The thing is that you have to be kind of eternally vigilant for it because there's no time limit for it as well. Once you get started on these therapies, they can go on for a year, two years, three years for a lot of our patients. And it is true that it does happen in the early part of the therapy, the first one to three months, but it can also happen in the later part of the therapy, uh, you know, even if they have been on it for a long time. Unfortunately, while on the treatment, sometimes it does have side effects. The most important thing is to recognize it early because if you catch it early, it's easier to treat and the chance of it being life-threatening are much less. Catching it early is a big help for the, you know, the doctors and the patients. You need to have those lines of communication very clear. That's like, okay, I have a symptom, but, uh, how can I reach my cancer doctor? Uh, how can I uh, give them this information? Because it may sound innocuous to you. It may be something like, hey, I'm just having a little more diarrhea. But that could be very important, uh, and it could be uh, something that could become, uh, that could require you in a hospital treatment. Let me ask you before we wrap up: If a cancer patient develops, say, chest pain, do they go to the emergency department, or do they call their oncologist, or do they contact their primary care doctor? Who oversees their medical care? If the patient's cancer doctor has information that his other doctors don't. Uh, he can recognize things that his other doctors, just because of their training, uh, may not know is, is of clinical importance. So we all agree that the cancer doctor needs to get this information. So this is done differently in uh, different settings. So I can tell you in upstate how it works. Uh, in upstate, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there is someone on uh, who is responsible for taking all these patients' calls. That's a line where the patients can call us and we can look at the chart and they can tell us the symptoms that, hey, this is happening, that is happening, what do I do, do I go to the emergency department, yes or no? And then we can make a note of it and we can send it to the other doctors who are at the emergency department. So I think they have a preliminary idea of this is the patient's cancer, this is what we think they're going through. So I would say if you're a cancer patient, all your life you're a person who wouldn't like going to the doctors, who's kind of tough it out and all that. You know, unfortunately, with this diagnosis, things have to change, and you have to be more uh, alert and observant. Because, unfortunately, a lot of the therapies and the cancer itself don't give you a lot of time to take hopes that can improve, uh, you know, uh, the outcome. The patients themselves have to be uh, vigilant. That if you can't get a hold of anybody else, just go to the emergency department. There's always some kind of mechanism of getting in touch with the uh, uh, oncologist, even in smaller practices, uh, even in the after hours. Well, you've educated us in several oncologic emergencies, and I appreciate you making time to do that, Dr. Wazir. My guest has been Dr. Ali Wazir from Upstate Medical University. The Informed Patient is a podcast covering health, science, and medicine brought to you by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and produced by Jim Howe. Find our archive of previous episodes at upstate.edu informed. This is your host, Amber Smith thanking you for listening.